You're listening to The Hoof of the Horse, a podcast dedicated to farriery and equine science with Dr. Simon Curtis. Sponsorship for our episode today comes from the Hoof Care Essentials Foundation and their partner, Charlie's Fly Spray. My latest podcast was recorded in New Zealand during my visit last year in 2019. And there I caught up with a young Kiwi called Rory MacDonald. We were in the North Island on a stud farm in Cambridge and that's really, the Cambridge area of New Zealand is the centre of their thoroughbred breeding. And we sat under a tree outside, which was lovely to record there. So I hope that you enjoy the birds in the background and ignore the plane that flew over. Rory's from Gisborne, which is so far east in New Zealand that it's actually the first place in the world to see the morning sun, and it's the first place to celebrate the New Year Day at the beginning of each year. Rory has had an apprenticeship. Uh, They have a particular apprenticeship in New Zealand where they do it under the auspices of the New Zealand Master Farriers Association. After he qualified, he did what a lot of Kiwis do, and he travelled. Most of them do travel. Uh, They usually return to this beautiful country after that. But he went to Singapore for a number of years, and he's going to talk about his experiences there. He was a smashing chap to be with for the day. He looked after me well, and he lives an enviable lifestyle. I'm in the North Island of New Zealand, uh, in the Cambridge area, and I've had the chance to go on a stud farm with Rory MacDonald, and I'm going to speak to him about his life as a farrier uh, and how he came to be here in Cambridge. Good morning, Rory. Yeah, good morning. So, Rory, uh, when did you first get into horses? Um, so, um, I've been in uh, horses pretty much all my life dates back to yeah, my great-grandfather, he was a horse trainer, my, my other great-grandfather was a farrier, blacksmith, so the granddad was a, a horse breaker, a trainer, my mother's a trainer, my brother was a jockey, so it uh, runs in the family here. So yeah, you're completely in the family. Now, which side of the family was the blacksmith farrier then? He's on my father's side. On your father's side? Yeah, yeah. So, so your um, grandfather had enough sense to get out of that business, did he? He saw it all the way to the end. He retired. I think he retired when he was 65. Yeah. He was the, he was the last um, uh, blacksmith known to be running out of a shop back when uh, you know people used to bring their horses to him. And he was in the Gisborne area, so he closed his doors when he retired. And uh, after that, people become you know you uh, mobile farriers now nowadays. Yeah. But but tell me, where is the Gisborne area? So the Gisborne area is on the, is in the North Island. It's east coast of the. North Island, yeah. It's the first city to see the sun in the world. We That's our claim to fame. Yeah, because you're right close to the dateline, aren't you? Yeah, that's right, yeah. So uh, you're the first to celebrate the new year, are you? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Yep. Yeah. I've had a few good parties here. <laughs> yeah, well, I know you know how to party here. Yeah. So, um, all right. So we're here at uh, uh, Phoenix Park, which is uh, a pretty well-known stud farm, and uh, it's one of your one of your clients, but we're going to get back to that because first of all, I want to know how you yourself started as a farrier. So I was um, working as a junior shepherd in Gisborne 
and um, I was enjoying that, and I, but I sort of figured I, I needed a trade, and, and being a farrier has always sort of interests me. So I applied for a few um, apprenticeships, and um, uh, I found a boss here by the name of Grant Atkinson. He, he was in the Waikato area, so I moved from Gisborne to Cambridge and uh, started that in about 2005. So, All right. Yeah. Yeah, so you're relatively new to the game. I'm quite pleased to talk to you because I, I tend to interview quite a lot of old buggers and it's nice to talk to young guys coming into the game, yeah. bringing a little bit of fresh blood. So you did your apprenticeship. How long did that take? Um, it's a four-year apprenticeship and I spent, I spent five years with Grant. So yeah, no, it was uh, it was good. We did uh, mainly uh, mainly stud work, uh, mixed in with a, you know a couple of trainers, breakers yards, a few sport horses. But yeah, um, big majority of it was um, was stud work. Yeah. Now, is there a farrier school here in yes. New Zealand? Yes, there is. Um, we we do a uh, um, um, yeah we do like I say we do four years. Every year we'd go and do um, uh, two years uh, two weeks of um, you know your theory course you know shoemaking stuff like that and you get assessments that you had to carry out throughout the year and yeah so and by the end of it we had a yeah, national qualification yeah by the end of the four years we got a national qualification and, and who sets the exam is that the national association yes so at that yeah that's right we have uh, um, at the time it was a uh, yeah, NCEA it was national yep and um, uh, the, the, the mentor was uh, Kim Hughes so he was the assessor, yeah. Okay. Yep. And and whereabouts in the in New Zealand is that, or does that move about? Yeah. So when I was doing my time, it was here in Cambridge, on Racecourse Road. Um, but yeah, it, it has been known to move around the country from time to time. I think it's down in Wellington now. Okay. And Wellington's the South Island. Ah, uh, no, that's the bottom of the north. Oh, I shows how much I know about the the geography of New Zealand. Um, fortunately, I always have somebody to look after me and get me from one place to another. But now you. You, after a few years, uh, you went off to Singapore, didn't you? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so I was fortunate enough uh, in 2011, I, I went over there, I had an opportunity to go over there, and uh, spent six years there, so yeah, that no, was, was, it was really good. Um, worked with a bunch of um, international farriers from England, Portugal, there's a few New Zealand farriers up there. Um, yeah, so that no, was good. It was. Uh, Huge learning curve uh, in the farrying world, um, you know, keeping gallopers sound and on track. Also, too, it was just, you know, get away from New Zealand, see a bit of the world. So it makes you appreciate where you come from, you know. Even yeah. Though, and, but Singapore was a, it was a, a it was an amazing country to live in, and yes, yeah, so got to see a bit, bit of a, uh, other parts of Asia as well. So that no, was good. So had you intended to be there six years? No, I, I hadn't even intended to travel, but I, I had a good friend, I suppose a bit of a mentor, called John Hawthorne, who, he was from New Zealand, and he went up to um, Singapore before me, and he uh, heard of it, you know, there was another job going up there, and he said, you know, you should, you should take a look at it, you know? And I sort of, like I said, never thought about travelling, but it turned out to be one of the best things that ever happened. So I went up, when I went up there, he sort of he showed me around, and yeah, got a job, and the contracts up there are uh, three-year contracts. Yeah. So did my first three years and really enjoyed it and got the opportunity to stay on again for another three more years, yeah. So tell me, how did you cope with the climate? Yeah, that was challenging, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I was out there 
only a month ago and I've never been so hot and sweaty in my life it's a uh, you know it's such a humid climate isn't it and I think it's like that all year round isn't it you're right yeah so it stays hot it stays the same sort of temperature 24-7 so even at you know in the middle of the night it's the same temperature it doesn't drop you know because it's right, right on the equator so but and it's actually quite funny so yeah it's quite draining but you actually appreciate going to work and and knowing exactly what you're going to wear for the day you know you, it's that one thing you do you do uh, appreciate about it so you do get acclimatized to the heat you do sweat a lot you sort of learn to take a couple of changes of clothes throughout the day but you actually appreciated knowing that when you went to work you were going to be warm there's no sort of you know cold snaps coming through or anything like that so you did and and the facilities there were pretty good so like you know you had air conditioning barns yeah yeah you know things like that you did a bit of work outside like the race days and stuff like that but no you did you did acclimatize yeah I, I went racing and because I was a guest I was wearing a jacket and tie oh I had to just keep going back in where there was aircon and you know but I was expected to wear the jacket and uh, but I notice even the guys when they're on duty there they're um, uh, they wear a tie and a shirt don't they that's the right. farriers on duty yes, right. but they don't have to wear a jacket do they it's a bit of a killer but so how long did it take you to adapt to the heat to working in that sort of climate? Um, oh, I suppose it yeah, probably took about yeah, six months sort of thing. I think the one thing that you learnt, it took me a little while, was that you take a towel with you to work so you can always continuously wipe your face because it makes you feel a bit uncomfortable when you've got sweat dripping off your face and then obviously having to change your clothes for lunch time, things like that, that always feels quite refreshing, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. All right, so you did six years there. And how long ago did you come back here to Cambridge? So I've been home for just about 18 months. So I came back in uh, December 2017. And uh, yes, I've been home here just, just a bit over 18 months. And you developed a, a business here? Yes, so I've, I've come home and uh, started up a sole trader here in the area. And I've uh, been fortunate to pick up a you know a good, good client base. And... Um, Main work, main lot of work is, is stud work, you know, um, from you know, stallions to broodmares to foals to yearlings. But I also do um, a few racehorses and quite a few sport horses. And the occasional big heavy cob. Yes. That's what I saw you. Yeah. So just, yeah. just checking him uh, this morning, but um, he, he's, he's here on Phoenix Park stud, but we're, well, we're sitting outside mm. in the middle of winter, and it, but at least it's still sitable out here, I think it's about 14 centigrade, Yeah, whatever that is, about, well, I suppose 55 or 60. Yeah. No, I really enjoy the variety of work that I've got, so I you know, enjoy the heavy horses, one or two on the books is not too bad, I wouldn't want too many more than that, but yeah, good for a change, yeah. Yeah, so, so tell us something about Cambridge, because this is the centre of the thoroughbred breeding area, isn't it, here in New Zealand. So tell us something about uh, the geography and the land and, 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 and how it works here. So yeah, Cambridge is um, about two hours north of Auckland, so it's, it's a pretty central place to uh, most other sort of iconic places around New Zealand. It is the, uh, where you say, the capital for the thoroughbred industry. Um, I think the main reason for that is that it's, um, you know, the pastures, the flat ground, yeah, the climate. But yeah, it's uh, it's a it's a good it's a good place to live. It's 
yeah, the cities cities aren't too far away, but you still got that country feel. Yeah. Um, you've got the the Waikato River, and you've got lakes that aren't too far away if you you know want to go fishing and. It's, yeah, and you like your fishing. You showed me you've got your rod in the back of your van, so you said if you have a half hour to spare, yeah. you just yeah, you just wander off to the river. The river's only yeah. ten minutes away, so yeah, go go put your line in the water and see if you can catch yourself a trout. Yeah. You, you must have, I mean, we went over the bridge where it's quite, it runs through quite a deep gorge, so, yeah. so where you go fishing must be more accessible than yeah. that. Yeah, no, that's right. So you can actually fish the whole rivers, but yeah, there's certain places that are a bit more calmer, a bit more quieter, so, but those are spot exes, you don't, don't, don't let everyone know. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I noticed a lot of cattle around here as well, so it's cattle land as well. Yeah, so it's dairy farm dairy farmland as well yeah so yeah, you've got your, your two main farming is, is uh, your, your thoroughbred farming and then your, um, your dairy farms yeah. So my experience of really good dairy farmland is that it's a bit too rich for the horses but do you find that? Yeah so I think like it's for when you you know growing a horse and that the nutrients that they're getting from the land I suppose that's that factors into why we, we are renowned for producing such a good racehorse. Um, sometimes you, you know with your there can be the feed can be a bit you know too rich for them but as long as it's you're being monitored and you you know the, the, the consumption of grasses is being monitored or the type of grasses but that, that the horses are on are being monitored because as I say we're in the middle of winter yeah and the grass looks as rich as I've seen anywhere in the world mm. in the middle of winter so yeah, it, yeah. it certainly produces yeah, yeah that's grass right around here. Mm. you know we are we do do grow grass all year round, so yeah, and particularly this season's been um, was, has been a season where the where this where the grass hasn't stopped growing. You know, it's it's been a sort of quite a mild winter, but um, it's sort of uh, on one hand the, the the nutrients in the grass it produces such a fantastic potential racehorse. On the other hand, yeah, it can at times be a little bit too rich for them. But, but thoroughbreds don't tend to get laminitis, do they? They're no. not not in the same way as your native ponies yeah, like you right. put them out on this grass yeah. they would all go down the landmines yeah you did right so they are they do get you obviously get a bit used to it because they're born and bred on it and, and I, but I mean you do I don't know whether you notice any developmental orthopaedic disease because that's something that you know foals and yearlings can get yeah. from, from just doing too well yeah. so but of course if this is the one area you've been in it's difficult to compare and say yeah. oh we have more than other areas but yeah. You must occasionally come up with that in, in on your stud farm, yeah, like you know, on your work with youngsters. Yeah, yeah, like you say, it's more you're susceptible as your, as your ponies. Yeah, yeah you know, and like you say, they can get, they can get you know sick overnight on it, but all they need to do is just take them off the pasture, lock them up, and then they come right, you know, as a rule. But yeah, most people are fairly educated as you know the signs and symptoms of of, of what, what it is. It comes on pretty quick, as you know, and yeah. Well, I, you know, I've searched long and far around the world, but I finally found a place then where there are educated people that, that know how to look after their horses. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's great. I knew, I knew there was uh, lots of things I liked about uh, New Zealand, but that's especially one of them. So, of course, one of the things that New Zealand is known for across the world is producing rugby players, not just racehorses. So, have you played rugby? Yep, yep. Always played rugby since we were five, or since I was five years old. Yeah, so it was sort of it's always uh, sort of bred in you. You you grow up being an All Black supporter, or you know if you're in the Waikato area, you're first and foremost you're a Waikato supporter, and then, yeah, and then from there you're 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 an All Black supporter. Yeah.
Well, even at the airport, I have to say, when I came in, I spotted three kids carrying rugby balls. Mm. So they just presented this with rugby ball and they're expected to have it in their hands the whole time. Yeah, yeah, that's it. You know, we are mad on it, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah well, you're pretty good at it as yeah. well. I mean, you know, if you want your country to be world champion, they have to beat the Kiwis. There's, yeah. no, way, there's no other way about it. You've got to be better than the All Blacks. That's right. um, although it did take enough years for you to win the World Cup, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. we've won it three times now. Yeah, you have so. now. Now yeah. you broke the duck, but yeah. it was quite remarkable because, you know, you know, too much flattery. Of course, you are the best rugby team yeah. in the world. And uh, yeah, it's always great, always great to see the yeah. All Blacks play. Yeah, that's right. That would be a good World Cup this year too. Hope you make it three in a row. Yeah, yeah. that's uh, in Japan. Japan, yeah. In, uh, I don't know, next month or not? Yeah, be next month, I think. Yeah, yeah. so uh, yeah, that should be great. Okay, so obviously when you're when you're a stud farm farrier, and as you said, you, you look after foals, yearlings, broodmares, stallions, do you have any stallions? Yeah, so, so there's a wide range they're all thoroughbreds, but tell us something about the cycle of the year. You, the foals are just starting to be born, aren't they, at the That's beginning right. of August? Yeah, so they all the uh, horses in the Southern Hemisphere have their birthday at the 1st of August, so after that's generally when they start to fall down. There's a few foals on the ground already, so they, they'll, they'll hit the ground, and then in about maybe sort of 10, 10 days' time you'll start to look at them. Just so you look them. at them at 10 days? Yep. That's pretty good, because yeah. most of my stud farms it's usually a month. I mean, I get pulled in if they, yeah. you know, if there's an obvious problem. But you're looking at all of them at yeah. about ten days. That's that, pretty good. Yeah. So we just look at them, observe them, make little notes. Not, you know, not necessarily doing anything with them, but just just having a look at them as they're coming through. Yeah, and then probably, like you say, start to uh, if there's anything that needs doing, start to do something with them after about a month month of being born, and yeah, making notes on them, and that's good. Always good to keep an eye on them and. So what number of foals would you have on this um, stud farm where we're, that we're sitting at? So this place where we, we are now is more of an adjustment farm. She does breed a, a couple of her own, but she'll get in the, the um, they'll come here as more as weanlings. Okay. But she does have two, two broodmares of her own where she'll fold down, they'll, they'll come here as foals. But yeah, we generally take them on at, at Phoenix here at, at more as weanlings. Okay. Yeah. So I saw quite a few weanlings and I watched you trim a couple. Yeah. What sort of number of winglings would, would be here? So we would do, we've got about 20. Yeah. 20, yeah, yeah. And then about, yeah, maybe 15 of them will go through to the sales. Um, they'll carry on to the yearling period. Oh, I see. So they'll, they'll be sold as yearlings? Yes. Yes. Okay. I'm just letting that plane go over or whatever it yeah. is. <laughs> we've had a pretty good run for sitting outside, you know. We haven't had too much noise. Okay, so you have 15 go to the sales. How long before the sales do you shoe them? You generally, you might put a uh, you know pair of front shoes on them maybe a, a month out before the sale because they'll start to do a little bit more and you don't want their feet to chip away and that sort of thing. Um, so, and then and then you'll shoe them maybe a week before they the main sale. You'll shoe them all around here. But I must make mention that I um I do do um, Cambridge Stud as well, and yeah. they've got um, they got about sixty yearlings. Yeah, so, so that but, but the foal, their foal population will probably grab you around about the 100, 120 this year. That'll go down. And then, yeah, they'll take about 60 through to the sales, yeah. the yearling sales, yeah. Because I always had this thing, I, I still love foals and working with foals, but I used to say, love foals, hate yearlings. I mean, yeah. yearlings are like adolescent boys, aren't they? Yeah. They just want to take you on. Yeah, they yeah. just want to argue with you. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, so they, they can be tough, but as a rule, I'm, I must say I'm pretty fortunate that we, we get, a, you know, get a good lot of handling, but yeah, you will come across a couple of rascals eh, here and there. Well, the, the two wheelings I saw you trim, I was told that one of them was going to play out, but it didn't play out. No, no, so. we had a good day, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. just those two quick trims. and Yeah, uh, yeah so, so you're shooing them one month before and then a couple of days before, eh? Yeah, you'll shoot them probably about a week out before yeah. the, the sales, but most of the time, just depending on, um, you know, the facilities and stuff, um, sometimes you can get away with not shoeing them, you know, you just put on the one lot of shoes before the sale. Yeah. Um, if you're having trouble with them, you know, the, with them chipping up, it's the middle of summer, so ground's hard, if they're going on the walker and things like that, then it just pays to put some front shoes on so you're not coming back every second day to... Well, I, I used to have one stud farm that had that, that you only shot them once, religiously, and the, the problem I found was, if you've got a misshapen foot or a broken foot, mm. you need a couple of shoes to, to get it right, don't right, you? Yeah. I mean, they're growing a lot of foot at that time. Dead right, Because yeah. they're aged and because they're well fed. But you still need a couple of shoes. And um, on the other hand, I, I, I still have a stud time that I've just retired from, from shoeing years, where they haven't shot three times. So nine weeks before the sales, five weeks before and then one week and I, I used to think for most of the yearns that was unnecessary um, but I think people that don't work on them don't realise how well they stand One, if they've had ten days prep yeah. they stand as well as a three or four year old don't they oh, you, you're always going to get the odd one that plays up but. yeah no yeah you're right yeah no, they are um, like I said they're well sort of well educated by that stage so do you ever have them sedated or, well, you know, because yeah. the ones that do play out, what yeah. do you do about it? So um, I was quite fortunate last year's run, we shot well, close to 100 yearlings altogether and uh, I only had to sedate one, so that was pretty good going. I that is good going. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I think people don't, that don't work in that, you know, in our sort of part of the, of the horse industry don't realise that, that you know, they, they're well handled and, and, and even young horses will stand if they're well handled yes, and, uh, and, and kept active. You know, I think the, the breaking or the semi-breaking for sales gives them a lot to think about yeah. and therefore they, you know, they're, they're glad to stand still and pick their foot up for you. What I thought worked well too is just shoeing them in pairs so it's not too much on them. So you go and go through, shoe them all in front first and then maybe a couple of days later go out and, and do their hinds. So it sort of broke it up and it sort of kept them relaxed and kept, kept you relaxed. And yeah, that, that's excellent advice. That's the way I always used to do it because I don't think they have the patience, do they, to no. stand there for four shoes to go on. They did, right. Yeah. So you break it up. Oh, well, yeah. I'm, I'm glad you, that, that was a good advice to anybody that, that shoes yearlings to, to break it up into pairs. So you have a few mares on your books as well. Yep. They're a little bit harder work, aren't they? Especially the hind end. Yeah. Even when they behave, they, yeah, yeah. you know, they're heavy. heavy they don't help right. you, do they? Yeah, no, that's right, yeah. So they, we yeah, probably have close to about, yeah, about 100, 150 mares on the books all year round. They'll, they'll sort of, their volume will go up over the season as they come in the studs to, you know, be outside mares come on the studs to be served. They'll get a couple of trims while they're there. So that might go up to around about 300 or so, three, four hundred. 400. Throughout and, the season, and do you have some help, or do you work with? Yeah, yeah. Else? So I do do get some help um, for the for the broodmares, and um, also get some help for the um, for the yearling shoeing because you have, like I say, that hun those hundred yearlings. Yeah, they all come they, at they once. All come at once. Yeah, and yeah. and they've got about a week to get them done. So have help, and then, but yeah. So so that's always uh, much appreciated. Yeah. Yeah. So your mares, 
what sort of proportion of shoes on? If you have a hundred mares, how yeah. many would you expect to have shoes on? I reckon I've got about maybe five, five or six that I've got shoes on out of all your... year round. Out of out of my ones that I look after all year round. So that's and what, what did you say? You said you have one hundred and fifty. Yeah. yeah. So okay. So so just three percent of them. Yeah. Um, and I, I would have said that in the UK that was a similar percentage. Yep. I think there's some parts of the world where, especially on they're on constant wet ground, mm. you get a far higher proportion have to be shot, and yep. then it's oh, maybe up to twenty percent of them. I know parts of Ireland where where they have to shoe that many, yep. um, because you won't keep them sound. They won't be even paddock sound, will yep. they? So, yep. um, it, you know, it's an interesting thing that we. To, by and large, they're unshod horses, but even for, for paddock, for comfort, yeah. some horses have to be shod, don't they? Yeah, that's dead right, yeah. So sometimes, some parts of the year, you might show a few more to say for even a couple of month period, just, you know, maybe while they're walking up and down the raceways and things like that, you you know, might chuck a couple, you know, a pair of front shoes on them just to help them get through. Um, but then, you know, there's, once the season's over and that sort of thing, the shoes come off and, yeah. and you know, they're back to being happy in the paddock. So when you, so you obviously have mare sales each year. Yep. Where you have mares in foal, and they're usually shod to go through the sales. No. Oh, no, they're not. No. See, in the UK, they, every, it doesn't matter if they haven't had shoes on for yeah. ten years. Yeah. If they're going through the sales, we have to shoe them. Yeah, yeah. No, so they do get used to um, with their feet being barefoot, and obviously you're going to be mindful when you when they are going to sales that you're going to have you know nice shape put into them, and that and you're going to have plenty of foot on. So they'll go up for maybe only t the sale might only last two days. So it's not like they're going to walk through their feet. Obviously, if they need shoes on, they'll get shoes on. But as a rule, you know, you know they're going to be going to sale in two months' time. You know, you're going to be putting the shape into them before then, and then when they go to the sale, they're going to have a good amount of growth on their feet. So yeah. okay. Now, I have to ask you a deep philosophical question. Although you're a young man, I, I would like to know. Uh, what's the most important thing that you've learned in your life so far? Oh, that's, that's a tough question. Um, I think as as a farrier, if you know, as a farrier, you, you do take things home with you. You know, you're always trying to uh, you know be the best you can be, and that sort of thing is probably trying to switch off. You know, switch off at night time, sort of thing, and maybe that's probably one big thing. Um, and you've got a young family, haven't you? No, I'm just been married, recently married, maybe in the last yeah, in the last eighteen months, but no 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 kids on the ground yet. So okay. uh, that'll come. That's <laughs> a tough question, that one. Um, well you well, you've answered it for us. Yeah. I, I think the fact that you said that when you get even thirty minutes to spare, yeah. You pull your rod out of the back of your van and yeah. and just see if you can yeah, catch a it. trout. Yeah, yeah. And do you take them home and eat them? Yeah, yeah. Oh, so I um, we go and smoke them, smoking, smoking them is the best way I feel. Yeah, but um, have you got your own smoker? Yeah, yeah. There's just a, um, just a little one here. Yeah. Oh, excellent. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Yeah, oh, brown, brown sugar. That's the that's the secret. Is that the trick? Yeah, that's the trick. And um, uh, was it manuka? Uh, well, manuka honey. Manuka I mean, honey, of course, yeah. only comes from here. Yeah. I know there's a few imposters, but the true Manuka honey yeah. comes just from here in New Zealand. Uh, look, it's been great talking to you, Rory. Yeah. You've got to get off to work. I've got to head further south in the island yeah. and uh, do a few more things. But, you know, thank you for your time. Yeah. It's been wonderful. Yeah, thank great. you. Nice to meet you. All, All right. right. Yeah, cheers. Well, that was a great 
discussion with a young Kiwi farrier. Uh, as you could hear, although he, he doesn't shoe and trim only thoroughbreds, uh, and I saw him trim a great big piebald cob while I was here, uh, he does mainly do stud farm work on thoroughbreds, and I could identify with that. All the work that he does is what occupied me for most of my working life. So we were able to have a good discussion about farrier's work in preparing uh, not just yearlings for sale and when you shoe them, when you don't, but also thoroughbred brood mares, even some interesting stuff about how many brood mares are actually shod, even if they're just turned out in a paddock. He also covered about shoeing young horses without getting into difficulties. And, and I think, um, again, he followed a pattern that was similar to mine and uh, he, he'll, he described that well, the fact that young horses do get fed up with you. They don't have the same patience that an old horse has. They won't stand there for 30 minutes. So it is better just to shoe a pair of front one day and even, or even shoe a pair of front in the morning and in the afternoon shoe a pair of hind. Uh, he's the youngest interviewee that I have recorded and I really enjoyed it. And going through the podcast again brought back many memories of that trip. So I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. We'd like to thank Hoofcare Essentials Foundation and their partners for sponsoring this episode. You can find out more information at hoofcareessentials.com. You can follow more of Simon's work on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Simon Curtis. To get in contact, please email thehoofofthehorse at gmail.com. And for everything else, go to drsimoncurtis.com. Thanks for listening.